The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And welcome back, everyone, for week three of our eight-week uh, summer Buddhist studies class, and we're studying the Buddha's teachings, an important map, the five spiritual faculties, and it's. Uh, like this engine, like this map of the natural process, how does a mind, like our mind, how does our mind go from having some inspiration to that inspiration being channeled in ways that lead to a deepening of insight? And then with a deepening understanding, more inspiration, and then how does that energy of inspiration, faith, confidence, get used skillfully so that it naturally, but we're kind of like creating a channel, because it's, I'm sure you've seen it in yourselves and in others around you, like good friends, where the person has a lot of that confidence or faith energy, something's inspired them, but it certainly can get wasted, it can even get weird and hard to be around when people have a lot of faith energy, right? There's all kinds of ways it veers off into trying to convince other people that you know what you're talking about or whatever it might be. So it's that, it's that like actually that trans, um, translation or transmission of insight, you know, how it, uh, it affects the faith energy, so that it can be used, becomes this feedback loop, which is, that's what awakening is. Remember, I think I mentioned this the first week, the problem the Buddha had when, after his insight, right, so his mind, his heart came to understand this experience as a human being, any moment, right, he came to understand it that it wasn't what he thought it was, right? It wasn't what it appeared to be based on his conditioning. Just like this experience we're having now, like one aspect of faith for all of us right now would be aware of how it is for me, like how this subjective experience is for me, but having a little space, a little light like and I'm not so sure it's what it appears to be. It appears like it's this, you know, it's me here sitting on this platform at Common Ground on Monday night, and that sort of normal dualistic sense, I'm here, you're there, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, just how the mind and its thoughts about things creates this whole edifice of me in the world. And so, you know, just that little bit of a crack at least that, well, maybe it isn't what it appears to be. And then somehow the Buddha had to, after his awakening, he had to explain how this ordinary life that we live which involves that existential uneasiness and all kinds of tension around our greed, 
for this and that and our fear and anger uh, about this and that and our disconnection. He had to explain how that was a natural phenomenon, natural process that has its own way of self-reinforcing itself, right? its own feedback loop, and how awakening is also a natural process, not dependent on somebody who awakens, that has its own feedback process that allows it to unfold when the supporting causes are there. So we're either in these vortexes that are stressful in a way that's self-reinforcing, that's called ordinary, or in more early Buddhist terms, it's called worldly existence, right? Or we've gotten enough of the teachings, we don't need a lot, to start, you know, that process of the getting interested in the teachings so they affect how we're connecting to the present moment and connecting, opening to the present moment in a way that the mind actually learns something. It sees something it hasn't seen. That's called wisdom. When the mind sees what it hasn't seen, and that wisdom, that seeing what I haven't seen before, understanding something more clearly than I've understood before, the natural result of that is that faith energy. Oh, maybe there's something to do with this life. Maybe there's something to wake up to. Maybe it's not just about saving money for retirement or making sure my kids get a good start in life, you know, whatever we think, you know, not dying before my dog dies. You know, we have all these sort of things that are, can be quite motivated just to kind of keep us in the mix of life, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you can ask yourself, like, what, what helped you get up in the morning and do the next thing? Whatever it is, like fear of embar- you know, embarrassing yourself, like if I don't get up. I don't want to be one of those people who just sits on the couch or you know, sleeps the tent. So that's what gets you up in the morning. But with some of this faith energy, it's basically, oh, you know, just this coming online that there may be, I mean, I know it can push our buttons to say it this way, but there may be a spiritual purpose, something that we can do with this life that will strike us and anybody really as essentially beautiful and good, wholesome, without any doubt. Because, you know, we'd, we'd be very happy making tremendous effort if we had real faith about that. I mean, like I often say, we humans are we're not afraid of work. We do all kinds of stuff that are, you know, in hindsight or from somebody else's point of view, like, that seems like a waste of time, but, you know, if that's what you're into. I mean, even gardening, which, you know, in so many respects is a wholesome thing, but, and then the season's over, you know, and you got to, like, clean up the garden, and then you got to do all that work again next year. And if you just let it go for a little bit, you have so much more work to do. Because, you know, the interesting thing about gardening, and I'm sure you realize this, is like nature does it pretty well without <laughs> our interventions. We just need to leave it alone long enough. 
right? And then, you know, something would come of it. So tonight, um, you know, we'll look at faith and its relationship to effort. Like, what is it about that faith energy, that confidence, that conviction that's been informed to some degree by wisdom, some deepening of understanding, increased clarity about the nature of things? Not So it's not theoretical, it's really arising out of our lived experience. So what is it about that energy, right, that allows the heart to take some chances, you know, to apply itself? Because we're not certain, you know, faith is at certainty, but we're, we're, um, have a sense that we don't have the whole picture. And for me, and, and I bet this, I bet others relate to this, some of the initial qualities of faith is this uh, powerful humility, like knowing, like having faith, I guess we could say, having faith that I know that I don't know. And that's, uh, in a way, a courageous place to be. You know, a lot of our religious systems and including atheism, they, they rely a lot, including, you know, in certain Buddhist circles, rely a lot on fixed views, like getting it, having the mind established in some belief system as a kind of psychological protection, you know, or at least I'm just, it's good enough, I'm just going to believe in it. You know, not that we even say that out loud to ourselves, but there's some kind of mechanism that makes it feel good that we have a, a map or a, a map of like what we think reality is, a story, and we're just going to go with it. So to, it's quite courageous to realize, yeah, I could use any number of stories, and yeah, I see some stories as being more interesting and more useful or more palatable than other stories. But then there's the story of knowing that I don't know. And, and that story has a particular effect that we can observe as we live our life and as we do our practice. Like, What is the effect of living your days knowing that you don't know? Like, that we, I don't have real clarity yet what to do with this life. And I don't even know if the sort of traditional way that I want meaning is even like, like I don't even know if I, I know how to ask the right questions. Like we need enough of that humility, it kind of stops the mind, the thinking mind, let's call it, from just filling in that space of what I don't know. Because there's a, there's a useful tension in knowing that I don't know. It really aligns quite nicely with the, the Buddhist practice approach, which is that receptive, intimate opening to our subjective experience. 
not this interpret not this interpreting our experience, but just that emphasis on opening and receiving that exposure. And that's why like uh, the you can you know these and this could happen next week even in the small groups that we'll do for week uh, four. You know, you could even share just your own spiritual journey, you know, and those places of a more profound humility and the kind of truer interest that arose and the willingness to sort of try on, you know, to experiment with how the mind relates and looks and opens and what it pays attention to and how it pays attention. And it's even problematic as a Buddhist because we get, I mean, we, we always, the mind, just the way it operates, it always will gravitate toward habit. So we need a counterweight to that. It's not easy to stay fresh. There they are. This is from uh, Sarah Durain. She has uh, that article on the five spiritual faculties that I, it's linked to in the, one of the links in the email that I've been sending out to the group. I think it's a really nice article if you haven't read it yet. Not too long, pretty accessible. So she refers to faith as an innocence of conviction. And she writes, it seems the possibility of transcendence that what seems to be isn't all there is. So that's what we're transcending. We're transcending right, the oppressiveness of thinking we know the way it is, or believing that it's this way or that way. It doesn't matter what the fixed view is. But the holding on and sort of living inside of that conception, whatever the conception is, you know, it may be a relatively toxic conception of reality or me or the world, or relatively interesting conception, you know, your religious story that you believe in. But there's a way of transcending that. She writes, she continues writing, that what seems to be isn't all there is. It senses that there's some profound human possibility to be realized, even though it is not immediately apparent. Right? And, that, and don't we know that experience, you know, that's related to humility? You know, we could use a phrase something like, that wisdom knows it's in the hunt or it's in the vicinity of learning, but it hasn't yet learned. It hasn't yet had the insight. But there's that intuition. Like even, uh, yeah, there's just, you can even have some bodily stuff going on. And you kind of get a sense that there's some understanding that's dawning, but it hasn't dawned yet. Some clarity, like an interpersonal 
difficulty, you know, with another person at work or whatever in your family, but you've really been being good, like paying attention, not believing your habits, you know, the person, but just like really being interested in what's here, what am I not feeling, what am I not seeing. And it's like, it's almost like we're, the mind intuits that it's getting a lot of good data, but it doesn't know what it means yet. (laughs) And so all kinds of just even mundane places, like your relationship with your pet, you know, like just through that non-judgment, that just openness, that sensitivity, something is dawning in the mind like, oh, this is how it all is. Just in so many ways, including, you know, around the experience of human suffering, this suffering, this heaviness that we experience in our hearts. Oh, this, and happiness. Oh, this is what happiness is. This is what heaviness is. And just that, that uh, sense that, you know, the faith, the confidence that this can be understood in a way that's onward leading. And she says that, uh, she writes, so I'll just reread part of that. It senses that there's some profound human possibility to be realized, even though it is not immediately apparent. Such faith is born in experience. It can't be given. It arises spontaneously out of a seeing and knowing for oneself. From it flows devotion and gratitude and commitment. And I like this last phrase. It is a natural self-giving, right? And I think that's that point. It's like regenerates. It leads to effort. Effort, wise effort leads to this valuing of presence that builds the momentum of present moment awareness so there's more stability. It's the stability of present moment awareness. That's the samadhi piece that that penetrates habit energy, like moves through the stuckness, the fixation on what we think, how we think it is. And the Buddha is really clear, samadhi, the stability of present moment awareness, the momentum and continuity of present moment awareness, naturally, unavoidably, sees or understands the way it is. It can't not do that, which is the insight, the deepening of wisdom. This is from the Buddha, translated by um, Tanisaro, this uh, Western monk. He's the abbot of a monastery um, outside of San Diego, a wonderful scholar as well as a teacher. He's translating the Buddha here. There there are these five strengths. What five? Strength of conviction, strength of persistence, strength of mindfulness, strength of concentration, samadhi, and the strength of discernment. These are the five strengths. Just as the river Ganges flows to the east, slopes to the east, inclines to the east, In the same way, when a practitioner develops and pursues the five strengths, they flow to unbinding. They slope to unbinding. 
they incline to the unbinding. That's how he translates Nibbana, the unbinding of what's been bound up. And how is it that when a practitioner develops and pursues the five strengths, they flow, slope, incline to unbinding? There is the case where the practitioner develops strength of conviction dependent on seclusion. Remember, seclusion is a technical word. It means those moments when the mind isn't uh, dependent on sense experience. So the mind, the heart is secluded from its dependence. It's, It's being pushed around by sound, by sight, by thought by touches. It doesn't mean we're not sensitive, but the mind isn't, it has some immunity, either because the mind's in a deep state of concentration, or because there's a lot of wisdom that knows what's just a sound, what's just a thought, right? So, the strength of conviction dependent on seclusion, dependent on this passion, dependent on cessation, resulting in letting go. And some of you who have done a lot of study, you might recognize those four things. Seclusion, dispassion, cessation, resulting in letting go. Does that ring a bell? The four tetrads of the mindfulness of breathing. So the first tetrad, mindfulness of the body, it's all about using the breath, using the awareness of the body, using that sense of embodied well-being to establish the mind in a place where it's not being pushed around by sense experience. So it's secluded from that. It uses the awareness of the breath, body, and that sense of well-being, like the mind being okay with the body. And here the body really means the five physical senses. So aware of the sensitivity, not needing it to be other. Right? So that's, that's that stability of seclusion, the pleasure of seclusion. And dispassion is basically doing the same thing with mental activity. Really being established in that joy of letting everything happen on its own and really changing the mind's relationship to thought and feeling and perception. This is mental activity. And then cessation here means the cessation of selfing, of self-centeredness, which is that really discerning, sensing the space of the present moment, empty of selfing. The space of the present moment is revealed when the mind isn't involved in selfing. As soon as I, I think I know the space of the present moment, then I'm not sensing the space of the present moment. It's something one or the mind abides in, or trusts, or rests in. And it arises, that understanding arises with the gradual cessation or weaning of uh, self-centeredness, self-centered activity in the mind. And then resulting in letting go, that's basically the end of the path, right, where the mind understands, like once we have more and more tastes, experiences of non-self, 
the, the mind empty of that self-centered grasping, then the confidence and the understanding develops about like what does the mind need to keep in mind to uproot the habit of selfing. Because first we, the mind has to really see that there is the experience of the mind free of grasping. And it has to see it enough, not just to know that it's what the heart's been looking for, right? it's the release the heart's been looking for, but that there's a way to be present, to pay attention, that uproots the habit. Because, you know, a lot of people who practice well will have that deeper insight, have a moment where the mind is empty of selfing. But then, you know, an hour later, ten minutes later, they could be totally caught up in a self-centered drama. It's very confusing when you have start having some of those deeper insights than to see the mind acting in its habitual ways. I mean, there's hopefully some space. So even though the mind might be really, you know, the body-mind might be acting in a very defensive or aggressive or closed down or you know, any of the depending on how the mind's been conditioned. Now, hopefully there's some space, some space of wisdom that understands, yeah, it's like this now. But that, but the momentum, right, the underlying tendency to take things personally, to act that out, that's still quite established, can be quite established in the mind. So it takes some, some real discernment to know, like, well, what, when, I, when the mind, when wisdom keeps what in mind, do those underlying tendencies, does that underlying tendency towards self-centeredness get uprooted from the mind? Let me just finish reading this. The last line. This is how a practitioner, when developing and pursuing the five strengths, flows, slopes, and inclines to unbinding. And it makes so much sense, you know, like if we thought of the op- opposite would be sort of uh, something we'd advise a young mentee of ours, you know, absence of confidence, complacency, laziness, distractedness, you know, a mind that's superficial and scattered and you know, not seeing things the way they are. That's the ticket. And that's the opposite of the five faculties, spiritual faculties. So it already, you know, just on that intellectual level, it should be conducive of some confidence to want to check it out. Is there really the spiritual, natural process that begins with inspiration and ends with a deepening of understanding that's impactful. An understanding not just, but an understanding that changes us in a way that the heart intuits, this is the way, this is the way I want to be changed. This is the way that's onward toward the release that the heart intuits is possible, however faintly. This is from Steve Armstrong. I I, uh, linked 
his article that I think this comes from, uh, it's titled Got Attitude. It's a fun article, but it's just Steve writing about the five faculties. It's a good article, not too long. And he writes about faith here. Faith is a spiritual compass pointing in the direction of our aspiration. Right? And remember, even if you feel like a beginner, faith is still pointing. Like, we always, even as a five-year-old who, you know, has no intuition or whatever, you know, they have a sense, however off it is, of where true, lasting, meaningful happiness lies, right? They've got a compass with a needle that's saying, you know, whatever. Being able to stay over at my friend's house or something. Mom won't let me. Faith grows from inspiration through exhilaration to trust and empirically based, unshakable confidence. This gradually emerges as our practice purifies attachment, aversion, and delusion. As wisdom grows, the compass needles, the compass needle of our faith adjusts more precisely to realign with increasingly wiser aspirations. So that would be another, like, a kind of homework assignment as you reflect on your own life in terms of the spiritual adventure. Even before you knew you had a spiritual practice, you were probably on some kind of spiritual adventure as a human being. And just to like, think about those adjustments in the needle of you know where your aspiration pointed to, what you thought was really important, going to be, going to deliver meaningful happiness, meaningful protection or meaningful release of what what uh, squeezes your heart, weighs down your heart. So what you know, what was that? compass needle like when we were 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever or last week or even earlier today because it's not like you know our orientation can shift one of the things that happens over time is uh, it's not that we don't feel the the energy that sort of conditioning to want to shift our allegiance but we know what it is. You know, it's like <clears throat> some, we see somebody who's really um, has a lot of those worldly things that we used to really think were important. You know, like a really, they live in a really cool place and they got a really cool place to live and they got a really interesting, cool job that makes them interact with really interesting, cool people, and they're, they're really connected to their body, and do Pilates, and all kinds of great stuff, and eat well, and make their own food, which they grow in their backyard. <laughs> you know, all those sorts of things, and, and we can feel that strong, if it, if it lines up with the earlier conditioning, we can feel a very strong Todd, like, oh, did I, did I take a wrong turn somewhere? 
because I haven't been pursuing that. But when I look at them, when I think about them, I think about them as happy. And, you know, we put ourselves there. Oh, I could be happy. That would make me happy. Whatever it is, those turns not taken, those choices not made, right? Or maybe they didn't, they weren't even available to us, at least as we understand it. And then what gives us some immunity? No, 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 this is, this is what my heart trusts. Because that's, that's really interesting when you start to see those, uh, whenever the, the conditions are just right and you're exposed to some vision that you used to have that would lead to happiness and you notice you have some immunity. It still activates the body-mind in the way that you would imagine, but you're not confused by it. Same thing with a, like a really attractive person that you might want to connect with or hook up with or be friends with or whatever. And uh, you really feel that kind of, because it can be quite visceral. And I'm not even talking about sexual energy, but just like wanting to be associated with that person. That's the kind of person you want to be associated with. And, uh, but what gives the heart some immunity like, uh, yeah, that, that would be, you know, a pursuit and you could put your energies toward making that happen the way that might happen. But there's this other thing that, that, that although maybe more subtle, the heart resonates, trusts more. Like, and for me, what the way into that would be like, as nice, like that might really be nice on that sort of worldly level, but not needing it, not being dependent on having it, is even nicer than having it. So as nice as being wealthy or healthy or whatever is, when we really feel into it, not needing that nice thing, is it has an even more profound satisfaction to it. Not needing the moment to be different is quite satisfying in that sense. And we have to get to know that and how that's onward leading. Because that really helps us understand what to do with faith energy and why the movement from being inspired, that freedom might be possible, the release of all that burdens our mind and heart might be possible. But to get from there to the realization of that, to the direct experiencing of that, it really requires that the faith energy is infected with the wisdom, is aligned with the wisdom. So that the, then the effort is wise effort, right? And wise effort is uh, knowing what qualities of mind support awareness and the stability of awareness, and what qualities of mind don't support awareness and the stability of awareness. Because it's that's that's kind of the. Uh, 
both the pointing out instruction we get from our lineage, from the Buddha on down, you know, the wise people before us, that's what they tell us, that the whole path centers on awareness and stabilizing present moment awareness. That's the catalyst for seeing what we haven't seen before. And that the doctor, the Buddha, has diagnosed our situation, our existential situation as not seeing things as they are, misperceiving. So the the cure, the path of practice, is to develop a mind that can see things as they are, which is why the emphasis is on present moment, that receptive awareness that knows it's like this, this is being known, and to stabilize it. So that's a, a very strong, dominant quality in the mind, that stability, that continuity of present moment awareness. Because the way it is then gets revealed. And the way it is, you know, this is the thing that we have to experience for ourselves, that onward leading quality. in this, this is more from Sarah's article, which she's writing about effort here. Energy or effort is the second spiritual power. And remember, they start as faculties, but when this engine, when this feedback mechanism gets some momentum, then they become powers, because this is what is happening in our mind, in our heart is this seeing more clearly, feeling inspired that the mind is seeing more clearly, right? There's a discernment, and things are making more sense, but not on an intellectual level, but just on a more visceral, intuitive level that, like the mind, that discernment, that deepening of insight, that mind just knows better how to operate. And that arises, that uh, increases rather the faith energy applying the mind to the strengthening of the uh, factors that support awareness and the weakening, don't feed, the qualities of mind that get in the way of present moment awareness, right? And then stabilizing that present moment awareness and more insight. So she says, these two words are linked, but they're not quite the same. Energy comes first, right? That faith energy and that inspiration. And then it's really the effort is channeling that energy, sort of directing it. What do we do with it? And puts it to use, she writes. Nothing happens without effort in any kind of endeavor, but especially perhaps in spiritual practice. This practice isn't easy. These instructions are simple, but carrying them out isn't simple. To be with the breath, feeling it, knowing it, and not identifying with it, to be with an emotion, 
a mind state, feeling it, knowing it, not identifying, to be with sensations, thoughts, the whole spectrum of experience, seeing it clearly and dispassionately. Such work is not child's play. A lot of energy is expended here just to get out of the pull of habit, the kind of gravitational pull of the mind that would get us and keep us in the grooves of habit that have been worn over years of time, right? And I just love that description because that's what it feels like when we're meditating, doesn't it? We just feel the gravitational pull of habit. And it's that faith energy and that ability, this is what wise effort is, the ability to channel it specifically in ways as a counterweight to the force of habit. And it's really that watering or the strengthening of certain qualities and not feeding other qualities of mind that will, you know, support distractedness. The mind is used to wandering, just erratically wandering from one thing to the next, keeping itself busy with planning, hoping, fantasizing, fearing, complaining, judging. It doesn't even know that anything might lie outside of its own limited scope. And, you know, I don't like to admit this, but, you know, when I'm wasting time on the Internet reading more news or stuff than I need to read, and just, it's like in those loops, in those activities, the mind is oblivious to the fact that this isn't for my own well-being, this isn't for anybody's well-being, this is not onward leading. Right? There's something about the juiciness of the vortexes we entertain and get lost in where we lose that bigger picture that understands clearly and poignantly. And you could try saying this this week. This would be a nice little uh, exercise around wise effort. Try articulating it silently in your mind, a phrase like, because just the pause to say this will be impactful. This is not for my well-being. And, and to really feel that sincerely, not onward leading, not for anybody's well-being. Nobody is benefiting from this. This is a cause for stress. And it's not just a cause for stress, it's not using the moment in a way that would be onward leading. That you know, is so, it's like we're missing our opportunity. And I don't know, I haven't really thought this through, but I've heard teachers say to me or to the group I was with, you know, that the, the way it works is there's no sort of static place. We're either cutting grooves in the mind and the heart that support delusion and stress, stressful states, or we're, you know, we're, going in the other direction towards letting go and liberation. So it's like there's no neutral place. We're either digging the hole deeper or we're getting out of the hole. And when we and we don't we don't even like to hear that. But when we allow ourselves to know that it's a real step out. Just like, you know, anytime you've been um, vulnerable to some, you know, painful, addictive behavior. When, when that day arises when 
you have that real clarity. This is not for my well-being. This is not helping in any way. There is no justification for this. Now, that doesn't mean that's the end of that addictive pattern. But it's a turning point when the mind can acknowledge to itself. And then even more powerful when you can acknowledge it to others. Like, so it's, it's set in community, basically, in some way that makes sense to you. You know, I'm caught here. I know I'm caught here. But it's just that admitting, like I'm, the, the momentum because of how the mind has acted in the past and related in the past, the groove is there. But now a new groove is forming, and that's the groove that understands this is not helpful. This is not for my well-being or anybody's well-being. So think about some place in your life where you can say that, and then really feel what it feels like to say that, like get an intuitive sense of what groove is getting cut when you say that. You know, like, it can be little things, like there's a way, maybe with someone important in your life, where you just shut your heart. You, you still might be looking appropriate on the surface, you know, the way you're interacting, but somewhere you know that you're sort of distancing yourself or putting that person in a box or, you know, just the different ways that we disconnect. And just to catch the pattern and to find if not right in that moment, then maybe a few seconds later, and then just feel into what you just saw. So when you say, that pattern is not for my well-being, not for anybody's well-being, not conducive to liberation or release, or anything that's wholesome, it is to be abandoned. I respect the momentum of that pattern. I may get sucked into that countless more times. But I'm now in a new place where I can, and I am right now, saying to myself, this is not to my well-being, not for my well-being, not helpful. And you, you'll sense that, not in a judgmental way, but you'll sense that in, in other people's actions too, like, oh, honey, that's a cause. I mean, I don't see the whole picture, of course, but what I'm sensing is whatever however you're relating right now, that's not for your well-being, not for anybody's well-being, a cause for suffering. And in a little way at least, it breaks my heart because I understand the lawfulness of what I see happening there, just like I, I understand the lawfulness of what I see happening here. And that's wisdom, isn't it? That's what inspires faith energy is. The wisdom is discerning the causes for stress, and the causes for release. And then the next step is channeling that. So when we have that sort of moment of truth, like, oh yeah, this isn't for my well-being or anybody's well-being, then you might just notice there's some intuitive sense of what to do with your energy, how to channel it. Oh, be careful here. Don't feed that. Don't follow that tendency follow this tendency. Here's another way to be relating when this arises for you. Right? And then you're you're recutting the groove. Not that it's going to change in a moment, of course. But we keep and so every time we do it again, we don't get disappointed or frustrated. 
we cut that groove, we admit to ourselves, this isn't the way. And that admitting isn't done on autopilot. We actually have to come from that place of directly feeling, sensing, this is not the way. That's the key. That's the wisdom, faith, application, or wise effort, right? And that's the kind of whipping back through that natural process, right? It's building some energy. And we have to use the wisdom. And you remember, a lot of the wisdom initially is learning what doesn't work, what doesn't help, what's unskillful. But that's wisdom. And that leads to confidence. And then that needs to be channeled into what am I going to do about if I feel sincerely this isn't helping. And you're not going to have perfect, you're going to only have the clarity that you have. But you're going to be observing, you know, so you'll catch it the next time around. Oh, yeah, that didn't help. You know, or I'm still caught, or whatever. Or I, I wasn't as sincere as I thought I was. You know, we don't really, in some way, don't really want to change. Because we don't understand where it's going to lead. I forget where I got this, but somebody broke it down, these factors of faith or conviction. Like there's a social piece. Like, who am I going to believe? As the Buddha says, you know, when he described what happens when people suffer, either they just beat their breast and complain, you know, oh, poor me, basically, or they begin a search. Who is it that knows anything about this kind of suffering that we experience as human beings? And then you check it out. Ehipasiko, right? Come and see. Check it out. So there's a social aspect, who to believe, intellectual, what to believe, practical, how to act as a result. So this ability, like this confidence in the ability of wise people to know the way, to know what to do with this life. And again, it may be our faith, our confidence may be initially feeble, like, I don't know, this person, it seems just like a religion, you know, the Buddha is special, they call him the Blessed One, you know, there's all these trappings in how the teachings have been passed down, because, of course, over these centuries, with human culture, they're going to turn this human being, the person we call the Buddha, into some sort of superhuman character, right? That's what humans do. And... Uh, but we, we, it's really important for those of us who are interested in undertaking the practices that the Buddha taught, it's essential that we see him as a human being. Because he and our teachers, our lineage, they need, we, they need to exist for us as like, they did it, they were human, well maybe I can do it. They came to understand something that was deeply liberating for them. And the, the whole point of remembering them is because they're like me, they're humans, with a conditioned mind, a body, living in human, imperfect human culture, being conditioned by that culture. And yet, apparently, they realize the freedom. And that confidence then makes us interested what what did they say? <laughs> you know, what did they tell us to do? And then that's where the work gets really personal. Then we heard it, 
then basically a lot of the rest is up to us. Once we really heard it right, right, then we have to apply it. We have to, we have to do the translation so we can use the teachings we've heard to connect with our subjective experience, to be intimate with the way it is, to see if it delivers a deepening of insight in a way that really shifts how we relate, how we are, how we experience. Shifts in a way that's unmistakable. Like if you've been practicing for a long time and you don't have any clear sense of being different, more resilient, more space, lighter heart, then you might want to do the same thing the Buddha said, like who out there knows something about what to do with this human life? And then listen, right? Who knows? Oh, you know, okay. Then like, what do you say? And then do that personal work of checking it out in your own experience. See what it delivers. Because the Buddha, you know, he talks about having, that the path is about becoming independent in the teachings. We still need the teacher or the teachings, you know, and I think, even though obviously the Buddha's been gone for 2,600 years, but, in, you know, a lot of us who uh, practice in, in Theravada Buddhism or early Buddhism, what we call in the West, Vipassana, insight meditation, you know, we think of this guy as our teacher. And his teachings we use and we check them out. And a lot of my direct teachers, you know, contemporary teachers and their teachers, you know, when I read them or hear them, it's sort of their restating the Buddhist teachings. And then we need to understand them enough, not all the teachings, just enough, a little bit, so because it's an engine, right? It just keeps repeating. So we just get a little bit, enough that sort of, even on that intellectual, okay, so this is how they say to practice. Well, on that intellectual level, it there's enough, it makes enough sense, there's enough logic to the whole system, even on that conceptual level, that I'm somewhat inspired to memorize it so that I can apply it, use it, see what it delivers, see how it affects. That's the only way to evaluate the path. How have you been changed? You know, you can ask your good friends and you can sense into it yourself, not in a day or a week or a month, but you know, over longer periods of time. How have I been changed? What is unfolding in this life? Is it trustworthy? So again, this week, you know, a special interest in that connection between learning, even intellectual learning, being inspired by some teachings or a teacher, and uh, that inspired energy and channeling, like what are you going to do with it? so that you're relating to your life in your sits, in your daily life, you're relating differently. You're applying your mind to the moment. You're doing something different so you can evaluate what that doing something different has set in motion. And does it 
is it setting in motion something that you intuit as trustworthy, onward leading to release instead of binding up the heart. And then that, and building that, and just seeing the whole thing as a, or supporting a natural process that takes on a life of its own. That's why there will be times, even sometimes early in our practice years, where there's a kind of effortlessness, because that engine has gotten some momentum. Maybe you've been on retreat or just have been really inspired lately and applied yourself a lot, but you just feel like, oh, I see how the spiritual five spiritual faculties become these, uh, what Thich Nhat Hanh called them fac- uh, factories, you know, that build up this energy, this light, this brightness. They take on a life of their own. And then, you know, the engine will fall apart and we'll have to kind of plod along again. Let me just end by reading one more passage from the Buddha here. Maybe I'll end with a quote from Joseph Goldstein, one of my important teachers. Oh, this is that quote I was looking for. So a little bit from Sharon, a little bit from Joseph. Sharon, I'm not sure this is an exact quote, but a close paraphrase at least. And it may be in one of the articles that I uh, linked to in, in our email. But she talked about how faith isn't opposed to empiricism, that faith is a confidence that life lived in alignment with and clarity with the way things are leads to peace and freedom from suffering. And I thought that was a good summation, you know, of what early Buddhism is about. Let me just reread that. Faith isn't opposed to empiricism, but faith is a confidence that life lived in alignment with clarity with the way things are leads to peace and freedom from suffering. That's the kind of information we get from our tradition. And then some techniques to support that basic point, that when we do the work of aligning the sensitivity of our mind and heart with the way it is, with the reality of the present moment, and build some momentum, then freedom is the natural way. Like I read earlier from the Buddha, the mind inclines to nibbana, to unbinding, unavoidably. And then Joseph here, we can approach our lives with a sense of spiritual urgency, with a great desire to understand this body and mind before we die. Developing the strength of mind to go straight ahead without abandoning our sense of purpose. And in both intensive meditation practice and in our daily lives, the refining and deepening of the five spiritual faculties can make real our aspiration to make the best use of our lives. Let's just take a moment, let go of the words. And thanks again, everyone, for being here. So good to be able to do this study together. Feel free, of course, always to send your Dharma questions about what we're studying via email. Send them to me and I'll weave them in 
to the talk. Next week will be a little shorter because we'll save the last 20 minutes for small groups. You can take notes if there's some things that come up in your study and practice that seem relevant to share around this connection between faith and effort, the channeling of our inspiration. A couple of things coming up. Nils Heyman will be teaching Thursday night, both online and here at the city center. A wonderful teacher of ours who we don't see as much as we'd like. He now lives in Australia, but a really wonderful teacher. So Thursday night, 7 to 8.30. Shelley's doing a half-day retreat Saturday afternoon. You can sign up to do that. Uh, Robin and Rick and Corey Clemenson and I will be leading a practice period, the Joy of Renunciation, we decided to call it. Tuesday evening, the 11th of July through Saturday, we'll end with a social lunch together on Saturday at 12 noon. So uh, join in for that. Still a few more spaces. And Corey's going to be doing our annual work retreat at the retreat property uh, the last two weeks in July. You can sign up for a couple days or longer. Check in with Robin in the office if you want to be part of that. You can still register for the Labor Day retreat. We're going to be, it's nine days. It's one of the, it is the longest retreat that Shelley and I teach together. So we'll be practicing here in the building. We're going to close the center to other programs. For those nine days, about 15 or so people will be practicing out at the retreat center and people can practice online. So we have one of those three options to join in. Um, consider if you can uh, take that time off and join in with the community intensive practice for those nine days. We'll end on Labor Day, so it starts the Saturday, the weekend before Labor Day weekend. And uh, Jeff Rail and other prison leaders are looking for people who are willing to lead mindfulness groups in the prisons around the area, check in with the office, and we'll connect you with the leaders for that. I think that's it. Have a good week of practice, everyone. Thanks for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.